Yes. When uh, you've reached middle age, I suppose like a number of us have, all right? Yeah, middle age and you have that uh, midlife crisis, you realize you're a fucking loser and that nothing you've ever done or tried to do worked for a reason because you're a loser. And so you need to take up a new profession. You have to try again. You have to remake yourself, I guess, as the case may be. And so you decide a number of different things, all of which you get through your list in three hours. You realize that you don't really have any skill on anything. You don't have any desire to learn new skills because that takes too long. But the thing is, you need money. Nobody's going to hire a middle-aged looking, I don't know, with a fucked up uh, resume. So, you decide to become a burglar and rob people's houses. But what you don't know in the interim is that your brain has been slowly disintegrating to mush in your head. And the drugs that you've been taking to try to counterbalance that constant feeling of exhaustion that one has when your brain is turning to mush in your head uh, has done something more to your brain to make it even mushier to wit when you consume bath salts. It messes with your brain, the flaca, stimulant. And in the midst of a dark nightmare stimulant-fueled dopamine trip, you find the perfect house. It's a great candidate. Looks beautiful. Must be full of expensive stuff, right? So you walk boldly to the front door. The outside light is shining you full in the face. And you try to open the door, which is locked. And the terrified children are inside, screaming, threatening to call the police. But you're far enough out that it'll probably take a little while for the police to reach you. So you have time. So you realize very quickly that you don't have a lockpicking kit. So now you're really kind of a mess, but you know what? The little goblin that was sitting on your shoulder just gave you instructions that this is really a, a gingerbread house and the door handle's made of sugar. And if you just start licking it, why it'll dissolve right then and there. So you walk over to the door, you start to lick the door and the lock. And you stand there with the intensity of stimulant-driven psychosis. And you can concentrate on stuff for a long time. So for three hours, you stand there licking the door, licking the doorknob, licking the lock, until finally they come and drag you away, kicking and screaming. You made no uh, inroads on dissolving the lock, I have to add. And the security camera that captured your every lick when you were trying to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll of a Tootsie Pop or whatever it is, is now on the internet, on Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter and the whole fucking Twittersphere and they're all laughing at you. And if only you could figure out how to tie your sheets up, you'd hang yourself in your prison cell right now. But you can't even do that because you failed at each and every, absolutely every single thing 
you've ever meant to do in your life. You're probably even going to fail at this, but I'll recommend it anyway. You, uh, you should listen to the Rogue Philosopher podcast. You might learn something, uh, although the competence of the Rogue Philosopher is, is in doubt in a number of ways, so you might be just as bad off. Who will you hitch your wagon to now? So, <laughs> now, this is the Rogue Philosopher podcast. And I'm the Rogue Philosopher, otherwise known as um, uh, the Renegade Heretic. Uh, rogue Philosopher sounds better, but uh, Renegade Heretic, I have to try to come up with something, don't I? Rogue Philosopher was a name given to me by others that I did not choose for myself. So in this podcast, we talk about all things philosophy and religion, insofar as I have enough of a grasp even to bring up the subject. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to focus on the soul. I've already, I've already done a recording about the soul, uh, but I'm having technical difficulties with the recording software, which is, which is why I haven't put up in, in so long, partly. Uh, and I talked for like an hour and 45 minutes, so it's a pity that it's probably never going to see the light of day, but maybe I'm better off. And then, uh, either later on in this particular uh, period of time, or in an, an additional, another episode, apart from this one, uh, I'll discuss religion and what it is and what we think it might be or want it to be or how, what we experience it as phenomenologically and the, the uh, many arguments that scholars have had about defining it. Because, like pornography, religion is something that we have difficulty defining, but we know it when we... Uh, what do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you experience it? Do you, um, you share it and talk about it? And I should add that uh, religion and God are not synonymous. And by that, I don't mean that uh, uh, religion doesn't have some inclusiveness toward God or uh, the divine or even the oceanic feeling uh, of the... Uh, um, what do you call that in Buddhism? Uh, when you're near nirvana or whatever. Uh, it's only in the southern Buddhist schools where there really is no god or no deity, but there's a definitely a, a cosmological situation that uh, draws from the Hindu uh, religion. Well, we call it Hinduism, but actually Hinduism doesn't exist. That's an English term. Uh, uh, that not being here nor there. Um, religion and God are not synonymous. We tend to think they are because when we're dealing with religion, um, we equate our levels of piety, perhaps, with the response to our prayers. And prayers are nothing but wish fulfillment fantasies uh, or necessary uh, uh, responses to extremely difficult situations. The capacity to feel this uh, divine presence uh, is not the same thing as the divine presence, even if God is real. And we're going to say for these podcasts that 
God is, real. And for the sake of the discussion, although by the end of this I'm going to show that it's not so, I hope, but we'll say the soul is also real, because a concept we've carried around for a hundred thousand years can't be all that wrong. Maybe it's inexact or imprecise, but it can't be wrong. You know, we these things we've carried around for decades of thousands of years must have some validity. They must work. It's not just because people are, are stupid. I mean, and so often there's a, a, a condescending tone in, in scholarship, uh, whether that's in new atheism or whether that's in, in the academy itself, at least in earlier times, the condescension was aimed at the the people themselves, the, the primitives, the tribesmen, or the uh, people from other religions. The Victorian scholars, although I admire in some ways their, their industry, their originality, and their, their um, pioneering efforts, yeah, but a lot of these people were, were desperately racist, and they looked down on everyone but themselves because, after all, the sun never sets on the British Empire, and it's our job to carry those poor benighted savages from their uh, paganistic uh, heathendom uh, to the finer light of uh, Christianity. Um, now, that's another interesting thing. Uh, the Christians have an ever-increasing number of sects and interpretations, each one of which has to become its own religion. They can't all just say, oh, we all worship Jesus. Why don't we try and remain a fellowship? No, they have to keep breaking away and breaking away and breaking away. You know, for what? When, when most religions now in the Christian denominations, they don't even have, uh, in some cases, the guidance that the religion offers or the teachings very limited unless you do advanced Bible studies, go online, educate yourself. A lot of people now just open up the Bible and go, I'm a Christian, and they don't even read the thing half the time. I mean, even at my seminary, I was shocked. I, I, I accept that I'm not well-read in my Bible. I've only read it a few times, and I don't really know what I can't. <clears throat> I can't cite Scripture flawlessly the way a lot of people can. They do chapter and verse. I am not quite so good. But I've at least read the thing a few times, uh, and I've gone through it, and now I'm not saying that all the Christians at my school did not. Some of them did. They were very faithful. They read their Bible. They, they attempted to live out the prescribed behaviors and morals of the Christian church. Uh, but I was shocked at how many people, you know, even advanced, educated people like myself who claimed to be churched, who were religious, did not know their Bible. I mean, that's, that's a shame. It doesn't matter what your denomination is or isn't. That book, whether we want it to be the case or whether we don't, I mean, some don't, you know, um, that book is the foundation of our society. It's the foundation of our laws. It's the foundation of our, of our interpersonal relations, our literature, our poetry, our music, uh, our, our uh, fiction, drew a lot initially from biblical metaphorical themes. Uh, the 19th century Victorians were a, a pretty, pretty good at spinning metaphors from the Bible and using it for their characters. Because everybody in those days, whether you were an atheist or a Protestant or a Catholic, 
you know, or a, or a, even someone from another, um, even if you were uh, Jewish, you probably knew the New Testament every every bit as well as as any Christian and in some cases the, the Jewish scholars knew more about their own book than the Christians knew which is why they won when the Pope would have disputes between a rabbi and a, and a priest or a uh, uh, you know a monk or a bishop or whatever the Jews always defeated the Christians I mean that's got to be quite a thing when when uh, you both draw from the same book. You're the same traditions in a lot of ways. Uh, but those Christians were riddled with anti-Semitism in those days. And, and uh, it, it, it's hard to say how far from that we really are. Um, it might be that anti-Semitism in this t- day and age simply uh, hides under the cloak of anti-Israeli. Um, where I, don't, I think you can be critical of, of Israelis' uh, policies in the West Bank and in Gaza or whatnot, fighting terrorism, you can be critical of that without being anti-Semitic, but it's a line that's difficult to delineate, and I think a lot of the anti-Israel critics, especially in the UN, they're not anti-Israel, they're not fighting for human rights, they're, they are anti-Semitic straight up anti-Semitic. So, well, in any case, that's neither here nor there. Uh, As long as we've had a perception of consciousness where we can actually stop and try to perceive consciously and think, who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing? How is it that I'm me, uh, this creature, and that I'm not uh, Tom, Dick, or Harry over there? or Mrs. Jones, or, or Mrs. Smith, how is it that, that I am conscious of myself apart from them in this particular body? And why not them? You know, why, why am I a human being and not an eagle? Or a worm, for that matter, or a snail? <laughs> what is consciousness? What is, what is it? I mean, these are all going f- pretty far afield of a podcast about religion and philosophy, and mostly philosophy. Uh, theologians and philosophers, I think they're, they're, they're plowing the same 40 acres. Religion is, philosophy is, uh, uh, ethics and law and science. They're all kind of plumbing the same depth. Psychology. Um, the the big three for our day, with science standing apart and dominating all, at least they'd like to see that, religion, philosophy, and psychology. Psychology used to uh, be included in philosophy and religion. Uh, the psyche, the soul, uh, in older times, everyone was believed to have a soul. Uh, and while they understood you had a brain. It was the brain wasn't thought of very highly in the ancient days. I think the the the, the Platonic philosophers valued the brain more than the heart. But I think they, if I remember what I read, and this has to be twelve years ago that I read this, because you stand upright, your brain is closer to 
the vault of heaven than your heart is. So your brain is closer to heaven. Your brain's closer to God than your heart. I don't know. They certainly didn't understand that the brain uh, controlled the heart. Uh, they wouldn't have had that concept. And as far as one's center of gravity, one's center of ego, we tend to believe that it's in our head, and we feel it that way, and we have a, a phenomenological experience of the thoughts coming through our head. Oh, incidentally, uh, yesterday, I haven't read the article, but they have created uh, mind-reading machines now. They can hook up someone to an MRI, they can read the brainwave patterns in the fMRI, and the damn thing can figure out the words that you're thinking in your head. Okay, now that's fucked. I mean, you, because we experience it that way. We experience, whether we're reading or whether we're thinking to ourselves, this constant monologue of reflection and interpretation that uh, we can hear these voices speaking to us. I mean, sometimes if one is very, very tired, you might even hear that as if it were real and outside of your body. Or from a non-specific point of origin, you, you can't figure out where it's coming from. When in truth, we don't really even need to enunciate the words inside of our heads, do we? You, you can have a thought, and instantly you get it. You can have a, a you see a picture; it's worth a thousand words, because all those words can be thought at once, and you feel and you recognize the different facets and dimensions of the photograph or the painting that you're seeing. And if you were to try to transcribe all of that. It would take, I mean, it's, it's a metaphor, of course, a thousand words, the first, the journey, the f journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. Th these are all uh, drawn from uh, the Chinese. Um, I'm not sure who first would have said a picture is worth a thousand words, but a thousand comes up often in Taoist thought. Uh, the one and the many of the 1,000 things, something like that. Uh, uh, but they can read minds now and they can decipher the speech that you're thinking in your head. So if you think that you can sit there and think, down with big brother, down with big brother, down with big brother, you're wrong. Wait until the chip has been implanted in everyone. <laughs> the chip's been implanted in you and you cannot buy or sell without showing the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man. And that number is 666, right? So it, things could become very difficult for any free thinkers. And of course, in the, uh, the Antichrist regime, you're either a follower of the beast or you're dead. You're one of the, the uh, annihilated of the lamb or of the righteous not good. Um, but in any case, the, the center of gravity, the equilibrium in our consciousness that we tend to feel is the center of our consciousness because we've been told that all our lives. It feels like it's in your head. And your, your sensory, our sensory organs, in our head. The vantage point, uh, in our head. It, it, but yet, if we had a different phenomenological metaphor, a different culture, with a different interpretation of consciousness. Would it be in our head? And that's an interesting question, which I don't know the answer to. Uh, I, I, I understand that in 
uh, East Asian Japanese culture, it's in your stomach. That's why seppuku, they, 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 they're trying to free the soul. But in some cultures, um, uh, Siberian, um, if someone is dying and they're, they're having a, a horrible agony as they die, sometimes they'll punch a hole in their skull to help release the the spirits, or they'll try to do a ceremony, uh, making a hole through the roof, so that the agony can be relieved and the soul set free to return to the sky. It's pretty much universal that up is good and down is bad. Up towards the heavens is closer to God or to the Creator, and down is to the underworld, to hell, to Hades. This seems to be almost almost universal in all cultures. I'm, I'm taking a dangerous risk to say that, but even if they don't have a strong concept of monotheism, most cultures have an idea that up, up high, is close, close to the higher realms of the sun and the stars and the soul, the spirit. Uh, as long as we've been able to question ourselves and ask these questions and to wonder about these things, who am I? What is this entity that I'm experiencing, this continuity of, of my memory and my personality? It seems uh, there's a continuous presence. And that must be the soul. It must be that there's more to me than just this body. And because if this body were all that there is, you know, I noticed that uh, one day so-and-so was walking around and they went to sleep and then the next morning never woke up. But the body, the body was still the body for those first few hours before it began to decompose, except that, where are they? They're gone. Um, so they've, they've gone to another realm. And the old Victorian anthropologists said that uh, Tyler, Fraser to some extent, but they both were of the opinion that... Uh, the, the experiences people had when they dreamt was evidence of the soul leaving the body. So I, I don't remember exactly where I was when I left off, so I'll just continue on, and uh, hopefully the segments will go together well. And um, uh, you will be patient uh, and indulgent with me uh, in my level of organization. <laughs> um, so what? So where were we? So consciousness, the reason why we understand uh, ourselves as having a soul is because of uh, our experiences, our phenomenological experiences of consciousness that we all appear to have an internal monologue, a voice that we hear in our head that is often composing in words. I had mentioned briefly, and probably that's all I can manage briefly, is that scientists have recently, using an fMRI scanner and uh, tracing brainwave patterns, they've recently been able to uh, translate those brainwave patterns into audible speech. And they... Uh, 
apparently did it correctly. So the, the world we live in is uh, becoming pretty extraordinary and in some ways wondrous and for those same, very same reasons also very sinister, very dark. Um, when we live in a world where uh, they have rewritten the genetic code of human infants and brought them to term uh, genetically modified babies with CRISPR, uh, cloning, we have to assume that if it hasn't already happened, it will happen soon. I don't personally, um, I don't personally look on that with as much horror, I think, as some people might. I mean, the, the, it's, it, whether or not it's ethically right to do that, uh, I'm not an ethicist and it's a little beyond me, but if the people in question grow up and don't suffer adversely because of being clones or being genetically altered, then it's hard to have a moral argument against it because nature, whenever you have identical twins... I mean that that's that's cloning you know and and nobody would ever say that uh a twin brothers or sisters lack a soul because they're cloned or genetically modified so but on the other hand should we do this should we tamper with nature should we in our hubris attempt to rewrite the genetic code as though we are competent to do so uh to a large extent, we're not, and we should be exceptionally careful. Uh, I'm no scientist, I'm not a geneticist, but I, I, I do understand that this technology could serve us well. It could help us eradicate diseases, it could help us grow more food, better food, nutritionally better food. Uh, it's not the fact that we can modify genetic, uh, genetically modify organisms that is the source of the horror, uh, the source of it is the unethical and perhaps malignant behavior of companies like uh, Monsanto, now owned by uh, Bayer, so they're no longer named Monsanto, but they're still Monsanto, and that our, uh, our, our FDA is infested with uh, Monsanto former corporate executives whose best interests are themselves. And they aren't modifying it to help grow more uh, crops. They're modifying it to have both more control over the crops of the farmers. You have the suicide seeds. So the farmers can't replant. They have to continue to buy the seeds season after season after season, which is, is cripplingly expensive. And they're designing the plants, corn, uh, soy, uh, potatoes, etc., not to withstand pests or genetic diseases, although I think some of them are more resistant to adverse weather conditions, to droughts, to uh, poor soil yields, but they're modifying them, although I do know they have modified plants that will kill insects that eat the leaves, they, they are modifying it primarily to increase the sales of um, Roundup, which is a proven carcinogen. And they're doing this in order so that they can saturate the fields with Roundup and kill all the weeds and everything else. Um, but it's hardly a, a benevolent use of the technology. 
which is a pity because we, we could use that technology. I've said it before. We could use it to eradicate genetic diseases like Huntington's disease or uh, severe disability. Uh, maybe even in the womb they could rewrite. Uh, but how far it's going, I don't know at this stage because a lot of the news is hyped and sensationalized and uh, it's easy to lose track of what's really going on in the fog of war, as it were. And this whole idea of, of the soul, that we feel we have one because, first of all, we're individuated creatures. And we feel as though the entity that is us resides in our heads, in our mind. The brain's in the, in the head, and it appears that the focal point of attention, the center of gravity, phenomenologically speaking, uh, has its foundation, its root, in the head. You know, your eyes. Your eyes see when you stand and you're looking out forward. Uh, if you bang your chest into something, you don't consider yourself as having struck your heart by crashing into this object. You feel like it's your chest below, which is below your focal point of consciousness. Yet if you whack your head really hard, it's like hitting at your core. It's uh, a blow that could render you unconscious. So it seems as though that entity, that light, whatever it is, uh, has its beginning, its central focal point in your head. And when we hear our thoughts and we experience phenomenologically uh, thought, it seems as though that little voice is in the center of our brain, in the center of our head, of our mind. And having just decoded speech using brainwave patterns, it will be interesting to see where things go. Uh, they could go in any direction, including including more sinister or evil directions, because I can, I can imagine one day they can put a chip inside your head and use that chip to read your mind. And if we're living in an age where orthodoxy and political correctness has become so dogmatic, um, it's already to a terrible level of intolerance, where it becomes so dogmatic that they can even read your very mind. I mean, we think we're being spied on now by Facebook and by our government and by God knows what other companies, Amazon, Google. Imagine the day when, if your thoughts are unorthodox or wavering from the regime of the culture, whatever that regime may be, capitalist, communist, or some other amalgamation thereof. That would be a level of surveillance both unprecedented and a level such that one could no longer protect themselves. Privacy, <laughs> it would be a forgotten dream. Privacy would no longer exist. And suppose you have some thoughts that deviate from the mainstream, you could be punished very severely. Now, in, in China, they are constructing a surveillance state where people are being watched at all times, everywhere they go, including in their homes, 
anywhere they go on the street, they're being watched. And they've set up this system now that we're probably going to have here soon uh, in order to support political correctness. Uh, where if you adhere to the orthodoxy, you get privileges. You get a better apartment. You get uh, maybe a vehicle, maybe whatever it is, your, your life improves and you are socially accepted and welcomed. But if you deviate from the orthodoxy, and they're experimenting with this now in China, the coercive element that they will apply is social ostracization. Maybe you won't be allowed to work. Maybe you'll be forced out of your apartment and you'll be homeless. Who knows? Maybe they'll put you in jail. Maybe they'll figure out a way to inflict pain on you uh, and torture you. Now imagine if they had this chip, you could have an electrode in someone's head and you could be using that electrode, say, to treat like a deep, deep brain uh, uh, stimulation, or what do they call that? Uh, DVT or something? Um, DBT, is it deep brain? I don't remember what the T stands for. But they could also rig that device so that if you have thoughts that aren't adher adherent with orthodoxy, they could cook your brain right inside your head. They could zap you. I don't think it's far-fetched what I'm saying. I don't. I think, I mean, maybe it's impossible. Maybe they want to do that, but won't be able to. But in the end, I'm not sure how much that matters, uh, what their limits are as far as their technological ability for surveillance, um, because they have so much now. And when they have your DNA, I mean, the, the sky's the limit on what they could do to you if they own your DNA. And again, I don't think this is far-fetched because it's the nature of companies to want control and to want to own things. They've done this with nature. I mean, there was a time when uh, the idea of somebody owning water would have been ludicrous. You know, selling water, bottled water. Selling water? You sell the water, you turn on the tap, and you, you it's free. No, it isn't. No, you pay money for the water. And as we increasingly pollute our waters, the bottled water is more and more necessary. You, you, you drink the polluted water, you get sick, you die, you get cholera, you get poisoned, you benzene poison, who knows? God knows what. Radioactive water. Uh, they want to own everything. And, and there's also a, uh, and I don't think this is paranoid either because it's happening. They don't know the full ramifications of this yet, but if you give a blood transfusion from a young person, teenager perhaps, they'd have to be over 18 to consent to this, I'm sure, uh, to somebody much older, um, maybe even younger, middle-aged, if they pump that fresh young blood into you, your old dying blood is rejuvenated and it apparently fights off some of the diseases of aging, including cognitive decline which is remarkable. I mean, so that this, what does this mean? It means that one day uh, you can sell both your, your poop and your blood because your poop has the right bacteria. You can cure people of very desperately, you know, ill people uh, with what IBD or Crohn's disease or something. Uh, but now you could also sell your blood. You could sell your blood uh, to, to buyers who want to, you know, older, 
richer probably, people who will pay you for your blood. I mean, you'll only be able to do that while you're very young. And I don't know the limits. I mean, does it, is it effective if someone my age, mid-40s, sells blood to someone in their 80s and you pump that fresher blood in? Is that, uh, will that work? Or really is it like 18 to 25 where you're at your, your, the height of your physical strength and health and endurance, mental cognitive clarity, you're at your, your best, and it's all downhill from there. Although I have lately been reading uh, Think and Grow Rich. Uh, and, oh God, what's his name? Napoleon Hill. And he talks about how a person doesn't really reach their peak of maturity and, and mental acuity. And uh, one's strongest, most mature uh, phase of life is between ages 40 and 60. And Hill makes the point that the most successful people in his day, in the 30s, throughout history, if you look at their bios, they didn't reach the height of their powers and their influence and their self-confidence and their competency until the between the ages of 35 to 40 to 60. Which kind of is, it, it flies in the face of uh, what we're encouraged to believe that you're at your greatest and, and most valuable state when you're under the age of 25 and, or 30. And once you have reached age 30, you're used up and, and increasingly useless as you age until you die. Never mind experience, wisdom, never mind the time on the earth that, uh, that matures you and ages you and, and you have greater insight into your own nature and, and that of others where you've had time to refine your skill sets. I mean, who would you rather have flying the plane that hits the thunderstorm? Uh, a man who is 50 and has been flying since he was, you know, 17, let's say, and has tens of thousands of hours of flight time in the plane? Or someone who's 22 and has 1,000 hours in the plane or less, haven't been flying very much, yeah, they've got maybe a little faster reflexes, but what good is it if you don't know what you're doing when you react? Uh, the physician, you want the best physician you can have, right? Do you want one with a steady hand? You know, you don't want uh, an 80-year-old uh, heart surgeon who's trying to slice through your ribs with a saw, you know, to do open-heart surgery. <laughs> Somebody who's 80 years old can barely lift the thing, and they're palsied, and they can't stop shaking. Uh... Or do you want someone who's 22, 23, uh, really doesn't know what they're doing too well yet, but by God, they're at the height of their physical prowess. No, I think I want the physician who's like 50, 55, who's been in the medical field for 30 plus years or more, who has seen every case under the sun that they can see and knows what the hell they're doing. You know, it, 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 it's what we lose in our age as we get older. If we take care of ourselves, it's minimal right up into age 60 or beyond, especially now with they're coming out with better medicines all the time, assuming we live in a fair world in that uh, people are more or less truthful, you know, that not everyone in the world is evil and deceptive. Let's say that there is a modicum of uh, 
of genuine authenticity in the world. So when these companies create medicines that extend your life or improve your quality of life, that they actually are doing what's benefiting for them as well as what's benefiting for you. I have a harder and harder time believing that, although I, I, I've become increasingly like anarcho-capitalist. But when a company decides insulin, well, insulin just isn't expensive enough. It has to be more expensive, so we're going to double the price. But why would they do that? Why would they crank up the price for an EpiPen several hundred or even thousand times higher than what the price needs to be. Why? Why would they do that? So they're basically condemning children with peanut allergies to die if their parents can't afford to buy the insulin. So we can add among our reasons for hating these conglomerate gargantuan corporations, we can add the murder of, <clears throat> of innocent children directly through their pricing points. Why, how can people live with themselves? I mean, so I know, I know that it happens. Uh, but let's assume that there's a level of playing field in that there's authenticity. So maybe they could extend that period of maximum productivity to age 75 instead of age 65. That they can improve your, your physical health such that you can contribute to society perhaps well into your 80s before you reach your, your ultimate uh, uh, decline. Nobody knows. Um, and I don't think all of them are going to play nice, but assuming things keep going the way they're going. Now, <clears throat> we, we do live in a, in a country where it seems like there's both the positive and the negative. So we live in a country where prescription drug prices are much too high and it's beyond uh, any excusable need for profit for these companies. It's, it's vastly beyond that because of the insurance or secondary insurance. We really, I really think we should have universal health care. I do. I, uh, the last attempt, the Obamacare, I mean, of course that was flawed. It needs to be destroyed and rewritten. But that doesn't mean that I don't believe in universal health care. Just because I was against Obama's tax plan, I was against that because... He was penalizing people for not buying the insurance. You know, that isn't right. Now they're forcing you to pay into a system. Um, but um, not sure how I got off onto this tangent. Uh, but but the soul, the the belief in this metaphor is becoming increasingly difficult in the face of our increased knowledge about the brain and how we can manipulate it and how it actually works. I know, so people feel threatened. They think uh, science is trying to destroy the soul, trying to destroy uh, biblical faith. Uh, and it's not without reason that people think that they're being encroached upon uh, by an overwhelming orthodoxy uh, based on science. Um, science, there's a difference between science, the scientific method, and scientism. Um, I, <laughs> if you asked me to throw down on the evolutionary debate, 
evolution or creation science, I, I would fall on the side of, you know what, creation science isn't science. And if you want to have classes on comparative religion, that's where you talk about the creation uh, myths. Okay, you don't talk about Genesis in, uh, in a science class where you're learning about uh, atoms and stars and molecules and chemistry and all the rest of it. There's no place for it. I mean, because ultimately, the, you, it's, it's, it's apples and oranges. Okay, religion wants to claim territory in the land of cosmology. It doesn't want to easily give up its former ascendancy in that sphere, but it has not a leg to stand on. Because religion is about faith, and it's about, it's about ethics, it's about how you conduct yourself, to be right with, with God. And that does not include the necessity for scientific knowledge. But it shouldn't, it can't replace science. There's no, no validity. It's, it's, how do I put it? If, if I'm trying to prove a cosmological point in physics by quoting scripture, once you have done this, you have immediately forfeited all validity in your argument. All validity. Because there is no way that whoever wrote that uh, Genesis 4,000 years ago, there is no way that they would know about the Big Bang, even though there appears to be a superficial resemblance. And there is no way that uh, because Methuselah lived to be 969 years old, you cannot say uh, the writers of the Hebrew Bible <clears throat> knew how to live almost e eternally, infinite. Living for hundreds and hundreds of years. No, it's a metaphor. It's myth. It's, it's not... It's not... What's the word? The right word. We're not talking about objective uh, veritas here. Okay, you might be able to say that the Bible is true in such that, but you can't say that uh, the Anunnaki came and gave human beings technology, you know, the alien astronauts theory, all that. Come on, it's all, oh, it's made up. Come on. Uh, but, but either way, so I'm not casting aspersions against anyone who's religious and believes in the Bible, even in a fundamentalist view, because that's their religion. I'm not, I don't agree, but I'm not here to attack but it should be pointed out, and this is another aside, during the Scopes Monkey Trial, William Jennings Bryan, none of those people believed the world was made in seven days. They were, they were what we, well, they called themselves fundamentalist. But it wasn't as extreme uh, and as, as narrow-minded as our fundamentalism is apparently today. And, and by that, I mean narrow-minded, I mean... Every word of it is literally and demonstratively true. Nobody believed. You know, none of the conservatives back then, it, during that trial, actually literally believed that God made the earth in six days and that it was 4,004 B.C. when the whole show began. So the earth is 6,000 years old. Nobody believed that. William Jennings Bryan didn't believe that. He was against evolution. 
but he wasn't against it from the standpoint of the absolute literality of, of it. He was against it because he genuinely believed that, that God made the universe and did it in such a manner that, well, yes, you can find dinosaur fossils. Yes, you can do carbon-14 dating. Yes, you can determine the age of rocks, the age of the earth. It's far older than we thought. That doesn't in and of itself restrict the role of a creator. And it doesn't in and of itself, although many will disagree with me, but that particular claim, the earth is four billion years old, does not in and of itself directly contradict one's individual faith in Genesis, in, in the creator, that there is a guiding hand. I don't, I don't buy it, but, you know, you can't say it's not so just because of a bunch of numbers. You'd have to do a little more than that. Um, although the burden of proof, I think, if you're having a debate between religion and science, the burden of proof is on the religious. The scientists have more or less done their work. I mean, it, it's up to us to replicate their experiments, say, but it's been done, it's been proven. Whereas religion... Whatever your religion is, yours or mine or my lack thereof, it's a, it's a statement of uh, one's individual interpretation. Um, so it's increasingly difficult to, to adhere to literal beliefs in the soul. Uh, it's almost like the more you know and understand about the brain, the further to the margins you're pushing the, the creator and the, the role of the creator in our being, in our entity, that the creator has built a soul. I mean, from the very outset, the, the whole concept is a little ridiculous anyway. I mean, Plato um, and the, the Platonists, the Neoplatonists, they did believe in, in the soul. How they came by that knowledge was either through mystical experience or through Platonic rationalism. Uh, Aristotle also talked about the soul, but he didn't think of it the way Plato did. Whereas Plato was very mystical. Um, Aristotle believed the soul is part of the body, and when the body dies, it too uh, dissolves. <clears throat> and that there are different levels of the soul. I think most of the ancient religions that we can read that were written down, as well as the Hebrew Bible, <clears throat> they had a belief in the soul as having several different states in which it exists. You have the, well, the easiest one for me to remember is the Hebrew where you have the body, the, the, you know, the bodily passions are controlled by the, lower, the lowest level of the soul. That your, your mind, your words, your concentration, etc. are part of your breath. So that's a different level of your soul, somewhat less dense. And then the highest level of your soul, which is that part of your soul that connects you to, to God. And then there are two levels, uh, additionally, of uh, enlightenment or advancement or connection to the presence of God and <clears throat> the divine presence. The Hebrew, of course, is nefesh, ruach, and uh, neshama. Now, most believe this. The Egyptians had two or three levels to the soul. The, even the most primitive Australian aboriginals 
said that, you know, you have a bush soul. <clears throat> Although, also, it needs to be remembered that a lot of these poor people who were considered primitive by Victorian scholars, the scholars looked down on them. So when they were doing their research, they weren't doing it with people they held uh, with equal respect to them. Some of them came to love the people they were studying, but, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of racism and a lot of, for lack of a better word, uh, uh, signification, projection, that was done by these scholars, and most of them were aware. They were not, they were not committing a crime out of ignorance. They were aware that for them, they were Christian, and anybody else uh, was at a lower level of evolution, ironic. Or the, uh, the more atheistic anthropologists simply bought into the development of civilization and societies as a progression of ever-increasing progress. So if you find people who are living in very primitive conditions, some would even use the word barbarous, you, you cast them down and you look down on them <clears throat> because they're at such a low level of development. It's, it's you know, the way you would uh, treat a small child. They're not an adult. You have to treat children differently. They're not adults. They're children. They, they, they're small and they're weak and they need protection if, you want, if you're looking at it from a more benevolent standpoint. And now, now it's, it's, it is interesting <clears throat> how in a lot of cases how condescending that is. But in other interpretations, um, it's not so much condescension as it is recognition of one's capacities one's development, emotional or mental, or, or reason, or spirit. Maimonides, for instance, okay, he, um, he talked about different levels of understanding of, uh, of Scripture and of concepts uh, about God. The metaphor that he used was, uh, I think it's from Proverbs, I can't cite you the exact chapter and verse, but you can look it up. The, the level of human knowledge is like a golden apple wrapped up in silver filigree. Okay, so you have two levels of understanding. You have silver and gold. So he's not devaluing one level. He's simply stating, look, there, there's one level where you more literally believe in the presence of God, you might not buy into him being a guy with a beard sitting up in the sky, but you still believe in literal reward and punishment. You still believe that this God is watching your every move and will judge you accordingly. If you don't follow his laws, you will be punished, probably physically, painfully. Uh, nowadays, we misuse the concept karma, and we talk about people getting their just desserts, right? Karma's a bitch. And they uh, get what they have coming to them, because there's a little counter keeping track. You know, the, 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 um, <clears throat> the store is open, but the hand writes. So it, it, just because you don't see the storekeeper doesn't mean there isn't an exact ledger being maintained. Uh, and it, your debts to them will be collected in full 
by the hand of the creator. The silver level is if I'm sick, I can pray to God to make me well. If I'm scared or hurt or my house is burned down or I'm being persecuted, I can pray to God to protect me from my enemies. There are things I can do, you know, and this doesn't represent a lack of intelligence. It, it, it's a, a, a stage of development that very, very few of us uh, exceed. Few. I mean, uh, atheism, atheists would say, throw the whole thing out, it's all, it's all a mess. And you're infantilizing yourself by leaning on this crutch, this concept. There, there's, there's only us, there's only human beings. And if we subscribe to some interpretation of religion that's very literal, aside from it appearing to demonstrate a lack of, of insight, when they're raising their children <clears throat> and they say, you know, if you're not good, you'll, you'll burn in hell and fire and brimstone, that constitutes a kind of terrorization of your children. It's child abuse. It's child abuse too because your, your kid didn't eat all of his oatmeal. Oh, you're going to burn in hell. You're a, you're a disobedient, unruly brat. And, and you know, the, the, the punishment in hell and your damnation will be eternal. Or telling people, very young people, children, because of original sin, they're born into sin. Um, these things constitute terrorization or brainwashing. And, I mean, aside from that whole religion debate, I, I, don't, I don't buy into that level of extremism. Um, it, it depends on the, the, the methods, the, the methodology, the behavior that the parents are, are demonstrating. I think that it's possible for people to be religious and raise their children well and not hurt them, not punish them excessively or terrorize them or physically hit them. I mean, but, you know, that, that all would reside on the silver level, even the atheists, because they too are saying this is literally what people buy into, what they believe, throw it out. It has no validity now in a civilized country. So, in effect, they, they, some of them are on a crusade of, uh, of uh, evangelistic fervor to dominate other people whom they supposedly claim are free. Well, if, if I'm free, leave me alone. If I want to worship the, the flying spaghetti monster, who the hell are you? And I'm probably going to um, repeat myself, and I do plan on going back to this topic because it opens up so many others. The, the idea of the, the, an incorporeal soul, uh, whether it's philosophers putting it forward or whether it's theologians, it's integrally linked to all of our mythos or mythologies, because we have them. Uh, by that I mean in, in the way of uh, Jung and Campbell, a mythology, the uh, the rubric of our culture, right? What, what holds our culture together is primarily uh, democratic and, and uh, Judeo-Christian values.
The soul plays into that. I mean, it our legal, our legal um, processes, um, presumably, are constructed on the idea that human beings have something that's that's precious beyond value. That life has has meaning. And it could be that atheists wrote the laws, but it's. I think it's very unlikely. I mean, the idea of a of a sovereign person in this country that's that's so valued, it really draws from Immanuel Kant and his ideas about there's sort of a value in people that exceeds what's immediately obvious. That everybody has a has a, for lack of a better word, uh, a soul or a geist. Uh, Hegel's phenomenology of mind it used to be translate geist as mind, or geist can be like spirit or soul. The idea of the soul is is integrally linked to heaven and hell because it's immortal, and in the you know Judeo-Christian worldview, Islam too, where you spend the rest of eternity is determined by whether or not you, ultimately, whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ, if it's a Christian worldview, or have done proper repentance. And even in Judaism, if you don't do, if you don't follow the laws properly, yeah, you can end up in a bad place for eternity. There seems to be some contradictions and contradictory statements throughout the religions. Some of them talk about uh, the soul merely sleeps. And you don't burn in hell, but you're not at the right hand of God either. And then you're resurrected uh, and then consumed by fire once more. But there's no eternity. Um, But if it's Catholicism, you have heaven, hell, and purgatory, which purgatory is hell, but for a limited time. Whereas hell is infinite, eternal, timeless. The soul is permanently separated from, from God and and burns with the demons. See, this <clears throat> it's confusing and interesting, because the essence of of um, of God, which is incorporeal and doesn't interact with the physical universe directly, and in the same way, the soul has no direct connection to the body. Yet somehow, the soul can manipulate the body. It can drive the body around, and even if the brain is damaged, the soul remains undamaged. I think that's that's in a nutshell, what most people would intuit. So that if your brain is harmed uh, by disease, it's really not, you're still there. Uh, but the, it's, it's, it's as if the, um, the connections are blockaded. And so uh, the soul can't get through. It's using the, the brain as a means of transmitting itself. Uh, and we've equated our emotions with the presence of this this incorporeal soul, and, and this this took me a long time to grasp that our emotions are physical. When they when they say stuff's in your head, oh, it's all in your head. It's not made up. People will you know, well, well, it's all just your emotions. You experience that. That's what your soul is vibrating at. Right? Emotions are physical. They're physical. They're made of neurotransmitters. Uh, they're made of reception, recept, uh, neuro-recepting uh, cells. 
and electricity. And in theory, if we knew enough of the variables, uh, I could put somebody into a, a chair, hook them up to a bunch of electrodes, inject certain chemicals into them, and make them feel and experience technically anything I want. The whole idea of a, are we already in it? Are we already in a simulator? A day may come soon when we'll have this <laughs> for real, definitively. Now, how much one can manipulate the character once you're inside the simulator, um, if we're living in one, and if this is any model, uh, people might want to increase the vividness of the simulation by suppressing their memories of actually plugging themselves into the simulator. In theory, we could do that. You, you, could, you can zap uh, the brain, certain par portions of the brain, with electricity and shut them down. Or you can crank other uh, brain centers up. And all of our experiences, as complex as they are, infinitely, unimaginably complex, is the brain, assuming that the Newtonian model's real, the brain is reconstructing the world around you according to the limits of your senses and presenting you with a very, very coherent, stable hallucination. Really, if you want to get technical, it's a hallucination. And that somehow the soul, the presence of the emotions, intense feelings, we still think of that as direct evidence for the soul. Or Descartes, who uh, I've been reading a little more about Descartes in spite of his errors. I mean, he's more brilliant than I could have imagined. He created calculus, the, like added to the calculus that later Newton, uh, Newton and Leibniz worked with they invented a lot of it as well but but Descartes was was like one of the top leading scientists of his day scientist they hadn't quite solidified the scientific method yet uh, but it was it was being hammered out in that century the 17th uh, but his ultimate approach uh, what later philosophers called the rational, the rational approach, not the empirical. Empirical was Newton. Newton says there's a world out here, there are physical laws, uh, it's stable, and matter follows these laws, law of thermodynamics, the, the law of falling to the, the earth, the gravity. That's assuming that there is a world outside. And that seems to be logical because that's the, we intuit this to be the truth because our lives are reflective of the world having actual physical existence. But the metaphysicians who are more uh, leaning toward the rationalist side determine by the content of their thoughts and judgments as best they can manage the realities and laws of the world. Now, new. Uh, Descartes ultimately had to conclude that he couldn't trust his senses, he couldn't trust his, his uh, feelings, maybe, but he certainly could trust his thoughts. The idea of that the thoughts are the pure essence of it, of, of the individual, and that you can think the thoughts can't be scrambled by the evil genius. 
Uh, and so on that, he knows for certain what the foundation of reality is. I am the foundation of reality, I think. I can prove that's real because I can think. Yeah, it's uh, pretty tricky. Because if you really want to apply all of the um, doctrine surrounding the existence of the human soul, it contradicts itself, kind of. It, 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 the, the arguments for it existing are not as strong as the arguments against it. They're not as strong as the arguments against it. Because the very rules that it's supposed to follow contradict themselves and would not, even if it was real, wouldn't be possible. How can it be? How can you have something that has no mass, it has no energy? Uh, I'm willing to entertain the idea that there's an energy, a subtle energy inside of us that one might metaphorically call a soul, our energy self maybe. But how can you have it? How can you have something that does not, is not affected by the physical in any way, that in spite of its inability to, to touch and interact with objects in this world, namely your, the body, that it can do so even though it has no connection to them and is not made of anything remotely approximating the physical, it exists outside of time, it is immortal, Although we experience time, it is, uh, it, it, is, it is timeless. And that it existed before we were born and will exist afterwards. That's another interesting thing, presumably. So what if it didn't exist? If, if we're just born, we live out one life and then we die, then it had to have been generated before you were born. What generated the soul? Was, is it a new soul or is it an old one? Are we talking about the energy of the soul being reconstituted, reincarnated again and again? And in the West, we, we, the East is a little different. Uh, when the West talks about reincarnation and karma, they mean that, that I will return. I may not remember a whole lot, but I will come back again and again as, as I perfect my soul uh, towards divine union. But in the East, the, the objective isn't divine union, it's escaping from the wheel of time. And what constitutes, well, depending on who you consult, I mean, there are any number of, of uh, deviations in uh, Hinduism and in Buddhism and Jainism. Uh, they cover the whole gambit of potential interpretations of, of the soul and of reality. Nargajuna, for instance, if I get this right, he believes that there is uh, an ultimate soul. Uh, but others believe that there isn't. And that the, if you read the questions of King Melinda or if you, you know, know about the skandhas, I'd imagine many of you know more about Buddhism than I. It discusses the sensory, the desires that create motion. You're, you're craving for things, you're grasping for things. But that when you break all of that down, there is no nothing, there is no central axis. There's no soul that can serve as the central axis to all of your desires. And so you reach uh, uh, um, nirvana 
or a state close to that. Or when you die, the, the disillusionment is total. The, the, the desillusion, the deconstruction of the body and the soul, uh, permanent. That there really is no soul. There is no ego, no you. But in the West, we're, we're still, even, even when interacting with Eastern religions, along with the innumerable problems of cultural misinterpretation and misappropriation, we reconstitute the Eastern traditions with a Western model. With a Western model. Because we have, it's, it's deep-seated in our psyche, our collective psyche. I think it's deep-seated in, in people's experiences. So the soul opens up the question of, of the divine. The Holy Spirit, the oversoul, that it too runs the world by its laws, by its force, yet is outside of time and space, is unaffected by anything going on in time and space. And depending on who you ask, it can either break its own rules repeatedly and create miracles that are, are completely against the natural laws. The supernatural can break those laws. It can break its own laws. Or it cannot. And even if it does exist, it cannot be interacted with or sensed. It cannot be bargained with or appeased. This, this is more sounding like uh, Spinoza's interpretation of uh, the panentheism. Everything is one substance, it is, it is God. Um, it is divine. But aside from the laws that were set in motion long, long ago, it has no, no actions. All of it's determined by forces, uh, by interacting forces on the globe that can be accounted for and explained easily. The soul is sort of the, the conduit to all of these speculations. What am I? A, a soul. Um, and it, it opens up, it can be a good um, foundation or starting point for a discussion of supernatural or divine or metaphysics, metaphysician. Trouble with metaphysics is that because it's metaphysics, it cannot ever come to a solution. And I think philosophy goes off the rails. If you get too metaphysical, you just sort of throw your hands in the air and go, but God, I don't know. Either you do that or you, you become either skeptical or you become an adherent of uh, an interpretation, may or may not be, belong to one of the great religions, and you just stick to that, even though it's not a proposition that you can, can call an actual factual statement. It's just a, um, a pseudo-factual statement because there's no way to prove the soul. All you can do to disprove it is say what it is not, what, it, what its absence represents. But even then, you know, because you're not going to convince people who, who believe in it to part with their ideals unless they're skeptical philosophers. Skepticism has its problems, too. We're, we're, we're seeing them all around us, the, the excessive skepticism. But you have to apply 
defensible propositions. So to me, I don't. I don't buy that there is. Um, for a long time I did. I wanted it to be. But I've just, I just have to acknowledge what I've experienced, what I've studied. But there, there, there is something, uh, the existential continental thinkers may not believe in a soul. They may be a total atheist like Jean-Paul Sartre um, or even Heidegger. When he talked about God, he didn't mean the God that we understand to be God. They still look to the mysteriousness of being. Being. Why is there something rather than nothing? And they go through a lot of contortions to try to figure out the answer to that question. Some of them are more uh, harmonious and acceptable than others. Um, the upshot of it being, in one sense, this is one facet of it, being represents the ability of the possible to manifest that there are possible different actions or choices that you can do according to your, your capacity. You notice what's around you, and your awareness is guided by your skills, whatever those skills may be, bodily skills, of interacting with these objects um, in some form or other. So when you're looking around, your eyes aren't passive. They're not taking in information and converting it all equally. You are looking, which is active. Vision is a bodily skill, not a sense that's a passive receptor, the way hearing is. And what you see, or how you interpret what you see, although to a, a pretty serious, frightening extent, what you see, what you notice, is directly contingent upon your skills, previous actions. What do I mean by this? Um, if I'm walking, uh, let's say I'm walking on a, a trail in the forest or something, and there are mountains, eh, maybe they're not even very high, but there are cliffs. If I'm walking by the cliff, it, it will almost have no, no impact on me consciously. But if you're a professional rock climber and you look up the cliff face and you recognize all the different ways that you could ascend, uh, where you could find the handholds, where you could, if you're highly trained in that skill, you're going to notice things about the rock that nobody else will notice because they don't need to and they don't have the uh, inclination to. So a lot of what you're, you're looking at some of what you see is is blocked out because it it isn't just that it doesn't meet your needs it's that you don't have the it's almost as if you don't have the proper receptors to register that because you're not you're not even remotely aware of everything you're looking at it's always active and when you see an object you're not seeing exactly what it is. You're seeing its purpose and how you can interact with its purpose. This is basic, very poorly explicated phenomenological uh, dictum, right? Um, now, some would say the soul is what guides your passions. 
and therefore the soul controls what what you see but you know again i mean we 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 it's a, it's a, for the sake of uh cultural continuity we talk about soul we talk about that because it's part of our western canon or your heart uh, somebody's broken your heart. It's actually been there's physical damage. There's actual physical manifestations to your bro- body and your brain. And so the idea of anything being all in your head is ludicrous. There's no, there is no uh, incorporeal, ephemeral, uh, emotional feeling self uh, that can be deceived, uh, deceive itself into. Uh, making stuff up. Oh, it's all in your head. No, it's it's all physical. Everything and anything that one experiences has a physical component to it because without it, there would be no experience in that way. So depression, for instance, not in your head, not made up. There's actual decrease in functionality uh, of certain areas in the brain and there there's it's way more complex than too much or too little uh, dopamine or serotonin. It's it's massive. It's probably going to be one of those things where uh, one doesn't know how little one actually knows until you're confronted with a situation that makes you open your eyes and go, well, wait, what I learned in school is obsolete. What I learned about the brain in school, obsolete, obsolete. When I was in high school, I never would have dreamed that one day it wouldn't have ever occurred to me. Well, you know, the brain keeps growing and it keeps reshaping itself. It's 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 plastic. It's it's flexible. Whereas what we were taught when when I was younger than than a teenager even, is that your brain has a limited number of neurons. Once you reach young adulthood, they start to die, and you use them up. And once they're, if they die, they never come back. It depends on the level of damage. Some of them come back, but, I mean, we're just learning, you know, and we might reach a point in 10 or 20 more years where everything that we think we know now, that we think is, is foundational truth about our our humanity, how we exist, how the body and the brain and the nervous system, all that, how it works, what makes it work, could literally throw the whole book out in another 10 years. Totally new model. We don't know. We don't know. And that affects philosophers. Um, because while they may have uh, uh, refinement in thinking, a lot of what they go on is foundational and contextually integrated with the level of knowledge in their time. So in Descartes' day, when almost everyone attended the church, even if you were a non-believer, you probably still went to a lot more church services in 1650 than uh, our religious attend church services today. It was a much bigger institution in society. And its truths, some of which were self-evident, would have been accepted without question by, by almost all, you know. But, um, 
I'm not sure how long I've been uh, to finish this. I think I can probably leave off now um, because the soul is, it's something I want to come back to when I'm dealing with religion or when I'm dealing with different questions in philosophy. The, the soul is always a concept that's in the thick of any discussion, often synonymous with, with the mind or the emotions. So I, I kind of want to uh, temporarily bring this to a close, although I'm going to be coming back to this often because it's, it's, it's a very complex, it's a complex um, entity to discuss because it's connected to what is the experiencing self? What, what am I? Why am I? Who of what am I constituted? Of everything, of nothing? But in any case, I'm going to call it good. Our sponsors at the Rogue Philosopher Podcast, Leprechaun from the Hill of Tara, Last Year's Fallen Summer Leaves, <laughs> The Tetragrammaton, and, of course, Cogliostro's Bones. Cogliostro's Bones. In any event, I will be speaking with you again soon.